We're going to read this morning from verse 27 to verse 54, to the end of the chapter. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to be together. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and singing your praises and the privilege of being a 
a candlestick here in Cache Valley. And Father, I pray that you would help us all to see, everyone who's here, that we don't come together because it's our idea, but we come together because it's your idea and you call us to, to, to be together. You call us to come in your name. And you give us that honor of meeting in your name. And Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, you would speak to us, you would instruct us and teach us, you would prepare our hearts to receive from you the food from your hand. And Lord, I pray that if there are those that do not know you and have not heard your voice, that this would be the day that they do. Lord, we pray that you would do your work through the word, through the scriptures, in our hearts, and bring glory to your name. Thank you so much for this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well provides us, who read, a wealth of information regarding the true essence of Christianity. And I'm just going to raise a few points. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well illustrates in vivid accents the sublime mystery that Christianity, brothers and sisters, is all about the transcendent God drawing near to us sinners, entering our fallen and sinful world in search of fallen and sinful, unworthy people. Is that not illustrated in this story? There's Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, searching for, reaching out to this sinful woman. There's an illustration of what Christianity is all about. God come for us. The conversation of Jesus with the woman at the well shows that the foundation and the central core of Christianity is not what we give to God, but what God gives to us. That's what he's. T- I know he asked this woman for water, but that's not the essence of Christianity. It, the essence of Christianity is not human beings serving God. It isn't. The foundation and the core of it is God serving us. Yeah, I know I'm asking you for water, but I have a gift to give you. That's why I'm here. If you knew the gift of God, you would ask him. He would give you living water. The, the core of it is that. That's what it's really about. Of course, the conversation at the woman, with the woman at the well shows that worship to God is basic to Christianity. So I'm not detracting from that. That's what Jesus says to her. The Father seeks worshipers. So worship to God is basic to Christianity, though it's not our worship that is the basis of our acceptance with God, but our acceptance with God through Jesus Christ is the basis of our worship to him. So yes, Christianity results in worship to God, absolutely. But it's as the, f- the fruit of what Jesus does for us. It's not the basis of our acceptance. It's because we're accepted with him. It's because we've come to know him that we give him worship in what Jesus calls spirit in spirit and truth. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth means not worshiping him in ignorance, which is what most of the world unfortunately does. But you worship God in the truth of who God is, who he truly is. You understand 
the living God and you worship him through Jesus Christ, not through the temple, which was only a shadow of Jesus Christ, and not through our own righteousness or through our own efforts to establish our righteousness and acceptability before God. That's not how we worship him. If you personally would like to know whether you worship God in spirit and in truth, just ask yourself, am I worshiping God to achieve acceptance with him? If you are, then you're not worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Ask yourself, am I worshiping God as he is revealed through Jesus Christ, or am I worshiping some other construction of my own imagination? And if you're worshiping God, and by worshiping God, again, I mean if you're praising him on, at church on Sunday with song, or maybe at home you get down on your knees and you thank him, or you pray to God and you give him glory, whatever it may look like, if you're worshiping God and you know that God is a God of perfect righteousness and he doesn't accept anything less than perfection, he doesn't look at your behavior and your good deeds and think, oh, you're a good person, God, and God is tight with me because of the things that I do. If you know righteousness, if you know what he requires and you know that you're not righteous according to that standard and you confess that to him, God, I am not acceptable to you in and of myself, but you also know that you are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, if you know that, then you are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. If you approach God with that truth and that understanding, and it doesn't matter if your worship looks pathetic. You might sing horribly, you know? The, the, the band might be terrible and the guitar strings are broken and it's just pathetic. But if it is in that truth and through Jesus Christ, it's worship in spirit and in truth. And on the other side, the worship may be grand. You know, you might have this super huge choir, beautiful pipe organ, and it really is impressive and beautiful. But if it's not in the truth of who God is, and if it's not through Jesus Christ, and, and on the basis of our acceptance with God through him, not of our own righteousness, that's evil worship, and God doesn't accept it. There's so many other things that this narrative shows us about Christianity, such as the historical and Jewish nature of Christianity. It shows us also the crucial teaching role of the Messiah, that Messiah is coming to, to make known all things and to teach, and there's many other things we could talk about. But this morning, as we continue on with the narrative, we're going to investigate what followed from this conversation. And I'd like you to reflect on this passage that we just read this morning. It is a passage that's filled with excitement and grief. Did you notice those two elements when we read it? Did you notice the excitement in this passage? Did you pick up that, that sense of excitement? The passage is full of excitement. I think apart from the narrative of the resurrection in the Gospels, this is the most palpable palpable excitement in, in the Gospels. We have the most palpable excitement, I think, right here. I don't know if you've, you noticed that when we read. There's excitement, enthusiasm, both in the woman and in Jesus. And we're going to look at that this morning. I'd like to ask you this morning, what do you get excited about? Do you ever get excited about anything? <laughs> I think we all probably do. What do you get excited about? I think of children who are excited for Christmas. 
Everyone sort of knows about how excited a child can get on the eve of Christmas, right? Or do you get excited about the Super Bowl? I know that a lot of people are excited about their Super Bowl, especially if their team is playing in the Super Bowl, right, Tom? (laughs) The Denver Broncos. A lot of people get excited about that. What do you get grieved about? When your team loses in the Super Bowl, right? (laughs) Tom, (laughs) last year? (laughs) Or two years ago, yeah. Or we experience grief, of course. What comes to my mind quickly is when somebody that we love dies. Christianity is exciting, true or false? Christianity is exciting. It was exciting then... And we can see that excitement in Scripture here. And it's exciting now. It's the most wonderful and germane news this world could ever hear, brothers and sisters. And if the news and the truth of Christianity doesn't stir you up, doesn't get you excited, doesn't make you enthusiastic, it's just a sign that you're suffering from a symptom or syndrome called, I'm not using my brain today. Right? (laughs) And some people suffer from that that syndrome all their life. That doesn't mean that as Christians we walk in a state of constant excitement and euphoria, right? But there are those times of euphoria and excitement when we're really struck afresh by the truth of Christianity. Christianity is inherently exciting, and those times come of euphoria. But also when those times aren't there, I think as Christians, when we're thinking about it, we're driven by a quiet excitement, aren't we? There's a quiet excitement, even if we're not, you know, Jumping off the walls, it's like, I'm excited about my future. I'm excited about the love of God for me. I'm excited what it means for me and for this world. I'm excited to see Jesus when he comes. And that keeps us going and drives us, doesn't it? Christianity also, this side of eternity, contains grief. Would you say that's true? And we see that grief in Jesus here in this passage. And we're going to look at that from verse 43 to the end of the chapter. We pick up that grief in Jesus and the way that he interacts with this royal official. There's something in people or about people that causes Jesus grief. And I think if we're in tune with the mind of Christ, we as Christians also will experience grief for the same reason. So I'd like to break this sermon up into three sections. First, we'll look at what this woman was excited about. Secondly, what Jesus was excited about. And thirdly, what Jesus was grieved about. So number one, what this woman was excited about. Now, of course, the answer is obvious and it stares us right in the face in this passage. She's excited about the idea that she may have just been casually having a conversation with the Messiah, right? And that he just revealed himself to her here in chapter 4, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. She's excited that this may be the Messiah. And in verse 29, she runs to town and she starts telling people, she's not fully sure if he is the Messiah, but she's she's got an idea he really might be. And she's like, is this him? She's thrilled at who he might be. And why is it exciting if, so, if someone 
told you that I am the Messiah, and he really very well might have been or might be. Why is that exciting to her? Well, it's exciting to her if you understand who the Messiah is. If you don't know who the Messiah is, it says whatever, whatever that means. But if you know who the Messiah is, you realize this, is, this might be the anointed one of God whom God promised to send into the world to make everything right. Now, how many of you would like everything to be made right? Don't we all long for that? And basically, that's what the Messiah is. The Messiah is the one who's going to make everything right. All your problems, he's going to make them right. He's going to bring righteousness, justice, truth, peace, all of that. And so all of basically humanity's hopes and individuals' hopes, the desire of the nations, is concentrated in the Messiah. And here he says, I am he. And he very well could be to her. And so she's excited. But let's look what happens in verse 27. Right when he says that, and her excitement hits the roof, the disciples show up with food. And they're not excited to see Jesus talking to this woman. In fact, they're amazed, the text says. They're amazed. And it's not the kind of amazement that's like, wow, this is awesome. Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. It's this amazement that's like, what is Jesus doing? They're surprised because what Jesus is doing is unanticipated, right? They didn't expect Jesus to do that. Unpredictable. They didn't predict Jesus would do that. If they predicted it, then they wouldn't be amazed when they saw it. They would be like, oh, there goes Jesus again, talking to the people like that. But they're amazed they're confused because it doesn't fit their categories what he's doing. They're stupefied by this. They don't get it. Now I'd like to ask you, how many of us have ever been confused or stupefied by something that God has done or has not done? Have you ever been confused by the works of God? You see, it's not just that there was this one time when Christ blew away our categories. It was when he was sitting at the, talking to a woman at the well. Man, that was crazy that one time, right? I'm glad God's not always like that. <laughs> he just did that once. <laughs> but the reality is, is that God blows people's categories and blows our categories all the time. In fact, we could even say constantly. He's constantly confusing this world. He's constantly doing things that is unanticipated and unpredictable. I think of the book of Job, where Job is thoroughly confused, right? Surprised, stupefied. What is God doing? He's amazed. And to this day, God does many things that amazes me, right? I don't understand why God does things, some things. I don't understand why God doesn't do some things. Have you ever struggled with that? Well, God, why don't you, this makes a lot of sense to me. Why don't you do it? I think if you don't struggle with that, something's wrong, <laughs> Why does God allow certain things to happen? Why doesn't he do what I think he should do? And to the disciples' credit here, 
And I know we often laugh at the disciples, but to their credit, they didn't challenge Jesus. And notice it says in verse 27, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? And those would have been challenges like, hey, what are you, do- what are you looking for here? Or, what-, what are you talking to this woman for? No one said that. Though they were confused, the disciples had enough reverence and trust in their teacher to not challenge him. Who was the teacher in this situation? Jesus, we need to teach you what you should be doing here. Or, you know, we need to learn from Jesus. We obviously have our categories wrong. And I think they're to be commended for this. It reminds me of several passages in the Old Testament. Job chapter 33, 12 to 13 says, Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. This is Elihu telling Job, Job, you are wrong for challenging God and criticizing God. Behold, let me tell you, you are not right in this. Here's why. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? What a lesson for us to learn. God is greater than you. So therefore, why are you complaining that he doesn't give an account of all that he does? Isaiah 29 verse 16 says, Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, He has no understanding? And in Isaiah 45, verse 9, will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? And the whole point here is that God is greater than man. The disciples knew Jesus is the teacher. I am not the teacher. So here's a lesson for us to learn, brothers and sisters. I believe that we have many opportunities with our finite minds to be confused in life. True? True? Many opportunities for finite minds to be confused. And this should be our response. When we don't understand the works of God, let us trust in him because of what we do understand. We do understand that God is greater than us and he has a good reason for all that he does. A good and wise reason. In verse 28... We see that the woman, on the other hand, the moment the disciples appear, runs off. And she's so excited that she leaves her jar. And remember, the reason why she came to the well in the first place was to get water. So she basically has forgotten, left behind her original purpose for going to the well. She went to the well to get water, and it wasn't that she just said, wow, this is very interesting, you might be the Messiah. Well, let me finish my errand here and just head back to town, you know. She's so stirred up, she didn't care about why she had come. She came in quest for water, she left in quest for living water. And truly, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And I think that if people just knew what Jesus had to offer them, they would drop what they were doing and make, and make, to make sure that they got it. The world is just in this hustle and bustle, going through life, pursuing food, drink, and all these other things. But if they knew the gift of God, they would say, stop everything, I need this. I got to get what God has. The problem is they just don't know. 
Perhaps she went to draw water for others. She comes back empty-handed, but with something far more valuable, news of the Messiah. David Brown comments, her heart running over with the tale she had to tell, she hastens home and pours it out. Now this passage, I'd like to um, raise a few points here, some important lessons regarding evangelism. Now this is not the best passage in the Bible for, to talk about evangelism, and it's probably not the most ideal passage in the Bible to talk about evangelism, but it still is a passage about evangelism, and there are some valuable lessons here to learn. And by evangelism, I just mean spreading this good news of the Messiah, which is something that we should all be concerned with. So here are four important lessons we can learn from this woman regarding evangelism. And I hope that we all take these to heart. Please don't miss these. Number one, evangelism is simple. I think this is the first lesson we can learn from this text. Evangelism is simple. How many of you ever feel like, I don't want to evangelize because it's complicated and overwhelming, right? I don't know what I would say. I don't know what I would say if they asked me all these hard questions and things. But here we see evangelism is simple. This woman did not know much, and she didn't have to know much either. She was a simple woman, but what she did know is that she had, she had just experienced an extraordinary person. And her good news consisted in pointing people to that extraordinary person and not pointing people to herself. The point of evangelism is not going out there and showing people how clever you are or how smart you are, how great you are. That's not the point. The point of evangelism is pointing people to how great Jesus is. And if you're a Christian, you know how great he is, you know? And so evangelism is simple. And if they asked her questions like, well, was he this? She says, I don't know, but come back and see him, you know? Talk to this man. He's amazing. Evangelism is simple. And all it takes is for us as Christians just to talk to people and tell them about Jesus, not to worry if we don't have all the answers, because I, I don't know. Someone maybe knows the answer to that question, but let me just tell you about him. So it's simple. Secondly, Evangelism is invitational. That is, it's not only a declaration of facts, but also an invitation to learn. An invitation to come and see. I think of the, the, the parable Jesus said of compelling people to come in. And this is good for me to hear, because sometimes when I go out on campus, I'm I spend a lot of time declaring the facts and I forget to invite people. And we could very simply as Christians, of course, go out and declare the facts. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus did come into the world to save us. But let's also invite them. You should really read about this, you know? You should really read the Bible. You should come and come to church and hear about this. Come to Bible study and hear about this. And we should urge them to inquire and to look into these things. I don't think we do that enough. So it's not only a declaration of facts, but also an invitation to learn. Thirdly, evangelism does not have to be organized.
It does not have to be organized. Now, there's no doubt that organization in evangelism can be, is very important, can be important. Uh, and in many cases, it is necessary if you're going overseas or something. But it is not always so that evangelism must be organized. And brothers and sisters, you don't have to wait to get organized to evangelize. You don't have to wait for you know, some leader at church to organize an evangelism crew to go out and talk to people. It doesn't have to be that way. And sometimes organizing evangelism can kill our desire to evangelize. And we start evangelizing because we've organized ourselves to go, and that's why we're doing it, and our hearts even in it, aren't in it in the first place. So there's a real danger with always trying to organize evangelism as well. Brothers and sisters, the best kind of evangelism is the, spon- is the spontaneous kind when you just want to tell people about Jesus. And that's usually birthed in a person from experience with Jesus or from spending time in the Word of God and renewing your mind on how amazing Jesus is, and then you just want to tell somebody about it. And I wish there was more of that among us. I really do. Organization is not necessarily at odds with desire to share the gospel. But my point is simply this this morning. Evangelism does not have to be organized. Let's rather get excited and tell people about Jesus. That's what she did, right? She didn't join some missionary organization here. Now, that's, not, that's good. I support those missionary organizations. She just wanted to tell her people about this man. And fourthly, and there's so many other lessons, but I'll just give one more. We see in this passage that evangelism is effective. True? You ever think that, oh, why go tell people? It's not going to make any difference. But here we see that it actually is effective. Because she shared about Jesus, many from the city believed. And look with me at verse 39 to 42. Look at the results of this. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of this simple woman who, just, who didn't really know much. She just said, come see Jesus. She just invited them to come see this awesome, extraordinary person. And because of that, unorganized, spontaneous, simple, invitational evangelism, many in the city believed. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. So the beautiful thing about this is that they were actually willing to learn. Oh, well, let's go check it out. Jesus, they, this woman says some extraordinary things about you. Please stay with us for two days so that we can talk to you and hear what you have to say. And at the end of that two days, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. May this happen again in our day. Why is evangelism effective? Because Christianity is true. And because Jesus is everything that we say he is. We say, come check him out. And when there's a willing spirit to come check him out, they find him to be true. And evangelism is effective. For Jesus is the truth, and the spirit is at work also, even in our day. So she was excited about the Messiah, and that excitement led to her evangelizing, brothers and sisters. May we also be excited about the Messiah 
and spread that good news to others, I pray. Now, the second point this morning, what was Jesus excited about? Because in this narrative, it's not only the woman who gets all stirred up here, is it? But we see Jesus getting stirred up as well. And I think this is really amazing to consider. What does Jesus get excited about? What's that, Jill? The harvest. Yes. Jesus gets excited here. And so we should be thinking, man, I want to learn something here. What is, what is it? And the beautiful thing is Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8 says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's excited about this. In fact, he's so stirred up and he's so energized by this that even though Jesus was thoroughly famished from a hard day of traveling and the disciples were there with food to give him, he didn't even have an interest for it anymore. His, his attitude changed. You know, I was hungry and thirsty, but now I'm just fired up and energetic and I don't even care about the food that you have to offer me. Verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Have you ever experienced that before in your own life? Or you get so excited about something that you just forget your hunger? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you were hungry and you wanted something. Something then happens, you're like, I don't care about food anymore. This is awesome. And that's the way Jesus was on that day. So what was he excited about? And what is he excited about to this day? And we see in the text what it is. Look with me at verse 34. To put it briefly... Jesus was stirred up about doing the will and the work of God. That's what he was excited about, to put it briefly. But we might ask, well, what is that will and that work? And to put it more fully, in the context here, what Jesus is excited and stirred up about is the salvation of sinners, giving to this world, eternal life, which is the true knowledge of God and causing people to become true worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus was excited about. And I'd just like to ask you this morning, is that something that we should still be excited about? Or is that something that was just exciting 2,000 years ago? It's the salvation of sinners, giving eternal life to those who are needy of it, bringing the knowledge of God and causing people to become true worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus loved to do the will and the work of God because what a will and a work it is. Because Jesus loved God, and because God loves us, and because the gospel brings us the knowledge of that love and causes people to love God, Jesus is thoroughly excited about all this. F.F. Bruce says that, to listen to the Father's voice and to do His will were the joy and strength of His life. The satisfaction which He now experienced through doing the Father's will was greater than any satisfaction which bread could give. And brothers and sisters, doing the will of God and the work of God, preaching the gospel, making known the knowledge of God, bringing worship to the Father, that brings more satisfaction to a life than anything that this world could give you. It doesn't matter what you seek satisfaction in. There's nothing that could be as satisfying as that. 
unless we begin to feel envious at the joy Jesus has in doing the will and work of God, Jesus proceeds to teach us that we too have a part to play in doing the will and the work of God. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus tells us that we have a part to play in doing the will and the work of God. And he gives them a proverb in verse 35. And he basically tells the disciples, this proverb, there are yet four months and then the harvest, does not apply in this case. You know, you know people say there's four months until the harvest, which is basically a proverb that says you need to be patient, you need to wait, you know, don't run out of the gate. Cultivate patience. The time to harvest is coming. And he's saying that doesn't apply in this case. In the bringing in of souls, that does not apply. According to Jesus, there are two things that are different about this harvest that he's talking about and a harvest of wheat or of grain. So the one, one is this. Usually with a regular harvest of grain or wheat or whatever crop, you have to sow, you have to water, and then you have to wait. And Jesus says, not so with this harvest. It's ready to be harvested right now. There's an abundance of people just waiting to be brought in. And stop. so stop thinking you need to wait. Go. That's one of the main differences here between a usual crop harvest and this harvest, Jesus is saying. The second difference is this. Usually, normally, when you harvest a crop of fruit or vegetables, you consume what you harvest. So as joyous as a harvest is, you know, wow, what a wonderful harvest it was. This is fantastic. We've collected so much vegetables and so much fruit. Let's celebrate and party at a harvest festival or something. But the beautiful thing is Jesus is saying, you know, with the usual harvest, yeah, it's joyous to bring a harvest in, but that harvest eventually gets consumed and disappears, and then you have to harvest again. And so it's temporary. You temporarily get the fruit of this harvest. But look what he says in verse 35, or verse 36, excuse me. He says that the fruit is gathered in for eternal life. So basically he's saying, this is a harvest that doesn't get consumed and that, that is not temporary, but it's eternal. Now, who doesn't want a harvest like that? So he's saying, look, everything's ready right now. Go out and get it. And guess what? It will last forever. You'll never have to do it again. You do it, you bring it in, it will stay. Try to imagine the incredible joy in heaven when you see the person that brought you in that shared the gospel with you. Try to imagine the joy in heaven. And they forever are going to have you to be with them and to say, wow, this is someone that I brought in. This was an eternal harvest here. And try to imagine the joy in heaven of, of people that you've shared the gospel with that, make, that made it. For all eternity, they're there. Eternal fruit. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. What does he mean when he says, already he who reaps is receiving wages? In verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages. 
Who is he and what are the wages? I personally think that what Jesus means here is nothing more than the reaper is already reaping. I don't think we need to push this too far, you know, and ask what are the wages. I think what he's just saying is, look, there's already somebody working and they're already out there at work reaping it, bringing in the, bringing in the harvest and gathering their reward. But if you want to push for what might the wages be, I think perhaps the wages are the wages of joy. And who is this reaper who's already reaping? I think it's probably Jesus himself. When he says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. I think he's talking about himself. And many commentators think that as well. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And the end of the chapter, verse 35. I think here, well, here is a parallel passage, but I think here we see he is already reaping but he's calling for the others to reap as well. He says, it says here in verse 35 of chapter 9 in Matthew, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then in chapter 10, he proceeds to send forth his disciples to continue or to multiply the work that he's already doing. Go to the cities, preach the gospel, heal the sick, do all that. And so perhaps this is a parallel passage to the, verse, the passage in John where he's saying, look, I'm already working, but lift up your eyes. The harvest is ready. You also go and work. And turn back to John chapter 4. We have another question to ask, and that is, who is the one who sowed and who labored? Because Jesus says in verse 37 and 38 that the disciples would be reaping that for which they didn't labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So he's saying, look, the harvest is plentiful. Go preach the gospel. People are ready to be brought in. Go reap the reward of others' labors. And the question is, who are the labors? Who are these ones who labored? And I think it's undoubtedly the prophets and most recently at this time, John the Baptist. Basically that line of men who had been preaching and who'd been preparing the ground before Jesus and his disciples came. Preachers and those who sowed the seed long before. Before I move to my last point this morning, I'd like to ask this question. I'd like to raise a question that I believe is still a live question. And I'd just like us to think about this. Is the field still white for harvest? Have you ever thought about that? 
Because Jesus here says, look, lift up your eyes. The field is white for harvest. So the question is, is it still white for harvest? And how many of you have heard people use this verse to basically say, yes, it is, right? They'll kind of use this verse as a blanket statement that the field is always white for harvest. It's a perpetual truth here. And therefore we should go because the fields are white for harvest as it was in the first century, so it is in the 21st century. However, there are others who say, you know, I don't think of it that way. That Jesus certainly tells the disciples to lift up their eyes and see that the field is white for harvest, but that was then, and things have changed. And today we can't say that the fields are white for harvest. They might actually say today, in, at, at least in the West, in the 21st century, it might, they might say something like this. The harvest is minuscule and the labors are many. Right? There's so many gospel preachers now. There's so much gospel preaching on the TV and on the radio and in every city, on every corner, and evangelist organizations doing all this work. But it seems like the harvest is few. Have you ever heard someone say that before? They'll appeal to a verse like John 9, 4, where Jesus says, Work while it is day, the night cometh when no one can work. And so what they would say is that, you know, there, there was a time when the harvest was white. It was ready. But today it's not so ready anymore. Or they'll say, you know, it's ready in other parts of the world. You know, you go to Africa, you stand up on a street corner. I've heard this many times. You go to Africa, stand up on a street corner, preach the gospel. Hundreds of people become Christians and respond positively to the message. You go to, uh, you know, downtown Logan, stand up on a street corner, preach the gospel, nobody becomes a Christian. You do that for seven years, nobody becomes a Christian. So they think, you know, yeah, okay, maybe there are white harvest fields in this world. And we've got to lift up our eyes and see them. They're there. They're just not everywhere. And things have changed. Now, whichever side we we fall down, uh, we, we side with, whichever side or interpretation we side with, everyone should agree that we should be evangelizing and sharing the gospel. And everyone also would agree that there are always people who are ready to receive the gospel, no matter where we are. There's people ready here in Logan to receive the gospel. The question is, how do we interpret the fields are white to the harvest. If we interpret that verse, or that that phrase of Jesus, to simply mean there are people who are ready to receive the gospel, lift up your eyes and there are people ready to receive the gospel, then it's true in every, every age. It is a blanket truth. It's a perpetual truth. Lift up your eyes. There are always people ready to receive. And that's, I think, how many people interpret that. If, on the other hand, we interpret that phrase, the fields are white to the harvest, as... People are ready to receive the gospel en masse. It's not just that there are some people who are ready, but there's a lot of people who are ready. The harvest is plentiful. Just poke your head up and preach and throngs of people will come. If that's how we interpret that verse, then perhaps there is a difference between the first century and the 21st century or between people in the West and people in Africa. So it just really depends on how you interpret it. 
And I think it's a live question, and I'm not sure how to interpret it, actually. But whichever way we interpret it, we must work and do the will of God, pray for laborers, and labor in the fields. The key point here in this passage is for Christians of every generation to get excited about sharing the gospel with those who are without. And I hope that you take that to heart this morning. And if you miss anything else in this sermon, please be, be stimulated, exhorted, uh, corrected from the scriptures that there's work for us to do until the day is completely over. My last point this morning is, what was Jesus grieved about? So we see that Jesus was excited about doing the will of God and bringing people in. But what was he grieved about? In verse 43, 44, and 45, we have a very strange passage here. Do you notice its strangeness? After two days, Jesus went forth from Samaria into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Strange. Why would you go there then if there's no honor, right? So one thing that's strange about this is it says, Jesus goes to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's weird. But another weird thing is in verse 45, when he gets to Galilee, the Galileans receive him. So we just heard that he has no honor in his own country, but then when he goes to his own country, he gets all this honor. So it's a strange passage. But as strange as these three verses are, these three verses are the connecting link between what goes before and what follows after. And these three verses are the key to interpreting the following story of the royal official's son getting healed. Commentators are, they disagree on the meaning of the first of those three verses, 43, 44, and 45. But I agree with a large group of commentators that the way to understand 43, 44, and 45 is to connect them with verse 1, 2, and 3 of the same chapter. And to see the Samaritan story as kind of a, an interlude. Jesus, you'll remember, we read at the beginning of the chapter, leaves Judea and heads to Galilee. He has to go through Samaria to get to Galilee, so we read about what happened there. But after he goes through Samaria, we pick up where we left off, and that is him going to Galilee. And when we look at the first three verses, we remember that Jesus left Judea because he was seeking for a lower profile. So he left Judea because he was gathering all these followers and these disciples, and the Pharisees were catching wind that Jesus was gathering more disciples than John the Baptist, and for that reason, Jesus withdraws. He wants a lower profile, so he goes to Galilee where a prophet is not honored in his own country. Okay. So I think that explains why he goes to Galilee if that proverb is true. But the second strange thing is, if the proverb is true, why is he received when he gets to Galilee? 
And the answer to that question, many commentators believe, and I do as well, is that when the Galileans receive Jesus and they welcome him in, they are not welcoming him in and receiving him truly. And you'll remember in chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, we had the same thing happen, where a lot of people in Jerusalem at the festival saw Jesus' miracles and they believed in him, but it says Jesus did not entrust himself to any of them because he knew what was in them. So they believed in him, they welcomed him, they were excited about him, but it was all wrong. It wasn't with a true understanding of who Jesus really is. It was because of his miracles. They were attracted to him. And actually, in chapter 4, verse 45, we see it's largely these same people who are excited to see him in Galilee. They were the people that were at the festival, that were excited about him. Now he's in Galilee. Hey, Jesus is here. This is awesome. But they're not really honoring him the way that he should be honored. And there's an intended contrast, brothers and sisters, between Jesus' own people and the Samaritans who received him. For many of Jesus' own people received him and believed in him because of the miracles that he did. But if you remember, the Samaritans received Jesus because of his word. Did you notice that difference? So when when the Samaritans say, hey, we don't believe in him just because of what you said. We spent two days with with, with him. We've heard his word. We believe he's the savior of the world. And Jesus was thrilled about that. But he's not thrilled about these Galileans' faith. And it's this background, this reality, which explains Jesus' grief. And his grief is shown in his answer to this official that comes to him. This story of the royal official coming to Jesus is similar to a story in Matthew chapter 8 of a centurion who comes to Jesus, but they're actually two different episodes. They're not the same story. Some liberal theologians point to the similarities and say, look, it's the same story, but they're hopelessly different. So therefore, the Bible's corrupt and all that nonsense. But the reality is, is that they're two different stories. And you can tell they're two different stories. First of all, in Matthew chapter 8, it's a, it's a centurion who comes to Jesus. It's a Gentile who comes to Jesus. Jesus says, I haven't found faith like this in Israel. This is a Gentile man. But in John chapter 4, the man who comes to Jesus here is a Jew. He's a royal official. He's someone who works in the court of Herod. And he's a Galilean. So in one story, it's a Gentile. In this story, it's a Jew. In Matthew chapter 8, the centurion comes to Jesus to heal his servant, In John chapter 4, this royal official comes to Jesus to heal his son. In Matthew chapter 8, the centurion does not require Jesus to come. Do you remember this? In in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus volunteers to come. He says, I will come and heal him. And the centurion says, no no need. It's okay. I didn't come to bring you back to my house. I'm a man under authority. I get authority. You just speak the word, Jesus, and he'll be healed. But here, the royal official begs Jesus to come. There's no sense of, hey, don't come, just say the word. He begs Jesus to come. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is shocked and pleased by the faith of the centurion. And in this story, Jesus is grieved 
by what this royal official is saying. It's not surprising that a situation like this should occur more than once. Jesus is a healer. Of course people are going to come to him asking him to come or heal whoever. But the main difference between these two different episodes is the centurions and the royal officials' understanding of who Jesus is. Because to the royal official, Jesus is a miracle-working man. And he comes to him because he's heard that Jesus heals the sick, and he has his son who needs to be healed, and he begs him to come and heal his son. But there's no sense that the royal official really understands who Jesus is. He just knows he's got power. He just knows he can do miracles. Maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's not. But I know he can do miracles. If he is the Messiah, let him prove that he's the Messiah by doing the miracle. But he doesn't have that understanding what the centurion had. The centurion didn't think Jesus should come to his house because he didn't think he was worthy to have Jesus come to his house. Isn't that amazing? This man thinks, I am not unworthy for Jesus to come to my house. And certainly Jesus can't just speak a word and my son will be healed. He has to come, and he better come, and he better come quick. On the other hand, the centurion realized Jesus has power and authority to heal from a distance, and he shouldn't come to my house. I'm a sinful man. What an amazing difference in their understanding. And so in verse 48, Jesus rebukes this official, but you'll notice in verse 48, he doesn't just rebuke the official, he rebukes his whole nation. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He rebukes his whole nation, he rebukes his own people. The whole context of this story highlights the grievous contrast between Christ's own people, the Jews, who were not ready to receive him. And those who were not his own people, but who were ready to receive him. That's the whole grievous contract, contrast here in this story. And it makes us think of the prologue. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But there were those who received him, and who believed in his name. When you know you're in darkness, brothers and sisters... You're excited for the light. But when you think that you're in the light and someone comes along to you and says, you're actually in darkness, then you're not excited about the supposed light that this person is bringing. And that's what's going on here. You remember the Samaritans who represent the outsiders who are ready to be taught by the Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah to teach them. They were aware of their ignorance. The woman was like, you know, we say we should worship on this mountain, but what is the truth? We're kind of feeling our way here, and we're not totally certain about what's going on. There was, un- there was uncertainty. There was teachability. There was instruct me. I'm not convinced I'm in the light. They were ready to be taught, but with the Jews, they were ready to be delivered. Yeah. Right? They were ready for Jesus to come and save them, the Messiah to come and save them and to approve them and to fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament of of peace and, and 
of Israel's reign because they were right, right? Because we are what we're supposed to be, it's time for the Messiah to come and do his work. His work of delivering. One author, Antony Savalgio, says that the Jews were not interested in him theologically, but only pragmatically. They were ready for Jesus to come and deliver them. In other words, the Jews thought of themselves as having the high ground. We are where we're supposed to be. We have the high ground. Are you the Messiah, Jesus? Well, then prove it to us by signs. Do what you're supposed to do as the Messiah. Heal the sick. Open the eyes of the blind. Release the captives. Deliver our nation. Do all those things that you're supposed to do, and then we'll believe that you're the Messiah. But we're not here to be taught by you. We have the high ground. We're in the right. If you don't get on our agenda, you're the one who's wrong, right? And so it is today. If you ask a Jewish person who is uh, religious, why do you reject Jesus? Why don't you believe that he's the Messiah? What will they say? Well, they'll say, well, he didn't come and do the things that the Messiah was supposed to do, right? He didn't come and deliver us. He didn't come and set up the kingdom. He didn't come and bring peace. He didn't come and do all the things he was supposed to do. Look, all the suffering still in the world. They just look around at the world and they say, of course Jesus isn't the Messiah. We know what the Messiah is supposed to do. He didn't do it. We're still waiting. Should he have done that? then we would have believed. And you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Contrary to all of their expectations, right? The Pharisees and the Jews believed the Messiah was going to come and be victorious. He was going to come and set up the kingdom, which we as Christians believe he will do one day. But they didn't understand their need. They didn't understand they were in darkness. They didn't understand they needed according to the prophets of the Old Testament, for the anointed one of God to come and suffer and die in their place to atone for their sins, to bring in everlasting righteousness, righteousness that they could not work for themselves. They couldn't be righteous by what they did. They needed the Christ to come and to bear their sins. They didn't get that. And so think about it. They're looking at Jesus on the cross. And what do they say to him on the cross? They say, come down off the cross and we'll believe you. Right? we will believe you if you come off the cross and do the things you're supposed to do and I think this is what Jesus is getting at here unless you people see signs and wonders you won't believe he's not nullifying across the board or rebuking across the board any place for signs and wonders Jesus did signs and wonders right He, he, he manifested his glory and He manifested his divinity. He manifested God's approval through signs and wonders. And those who were ready to be taught by the Messiah saw those and said, wow, he's the Messiah. Okay, instruct me, teach me, you know. Okay, so you are the Messiah. I'll follow you. But what he's rebuking here is the, the need for signs and wonders to simply confirm one's own biases, to confirm one's own position to do what we think you should be doing. And so the irony of it all is they're saying, come down from the cross and do what the Messiah is supposed to do and we'll believe in you. And he's on the cross because he's doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he's dying for the very people who are mocking him, the very people 
who are taunting him and saying, come off the cross and prove you're the Messiah. He's staying on the cross and he's proving he's the Messiah by doing that, dying for their sins, dying for the sins of the whole world, because brothers and sisters, that's what we really needed. And if Jesus had come off the cross and did what they wanted him to do, well, we'd all perish eternally. Our salvation is found in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And what makes a person a ready harvest or not is their teachability. Is simply a person's ability to say, you know, I'm not so certain that I'm in the light. And to not think that they have the high ground. And I think of James chapter 1, verse 21, where James says, putting aside all wickedness, receive with humility the engrafted word that is able to save your soul. And the wickedness that one needs to put aside is this pride of knowledge, pride of thinking you know, pride of thinking that you're righteous, and to receive with humility, okay, teach me, make known to me who God is and who I am. Receive the word that is able to save your soul. This is what grieved Jesus, is this hard-heartedness, pride, and lack of humility to receive the word. Of course, the man wanted his son to be healed, and Jesus will have compassion on him and do that very thing, but not before he rebukes him and gives him a healthy dose of correction and humble pie. And he rebukes him, not only in verse 48, when he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. He also rebukes him in verse 50, when he, Jesus, who is really a, you know, a nobody in Israel, he was just a, a builder, <laughs> commands this royal official to go which would have been very offensive, I'm sure, to that royal official. He says, go, your son lives. So Jesus has compassion on him, but he rebukes him. He makes it certain that this royal official knows that he does not approve of the way that he thinks. And so that royal official leaves, and when he realizes that Jesus healed his son, and Jesus has power, he then believed in Jesus and all of his household. And I believe verse 53 is talking about a true faith. And John is telling us this so that we would emulate such a faith. And because of that rebuke, that royal official, I'm sure, thought a lot about his own thinking process, thought about, who do I really think this Jesus is? Why is he so upset with me? And I believe his perspective changed, and he believed. John tells us that was the second miracle that Jesus did in Galilee. The first one was the water into wine before he left Galilee. He did lots of miracles in Judea. But when he got back to Galilee, this was his first one. And the purpose of this miracle is not just to show that Jesus is powerful, but it's to correct the reader's thinking on miracles. What what are they all about? And to show Jesus' grief over a wrong thinking about who he is. So in closing, 
We see in this passage that the woman was excited about finding the Messiah. And I pray that today we would be renewed in our excitement about Jesus, the one who makes everything right, and that we also would be excited to share that message with others. And brothers and sisters, we saw in this passage that Jesus himself was excited about doing the will of God. He was excited about making God known. He was excited about God receiving glory and sinners being saved. And I pray that we, again, would be renewed in our excitement and join Jesus in working and laboring and doing the will of God, not to be saved, of course, but because God is so awesome, because of the joy of doing the will of God. And we also see in this passage that Jesus was grieved over those who were, who were not teachable and who were simply entrenched on their high ground and waiting for God to confirm their own biases. And so I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is like those, the Jews in this story, who really think that you know everything. You think you already know about religion and about God, and you're just waiting for God to confirm your biases. I pray that you would reevaluate, and you would begin to question, and at least hear an invitation to learn. You know, Just look into it. That's something that most people don't do. Just look into it. Just question. Just examine. Just read a little and inquire, who is this Jesus and what really is his message? So that you can know God and be saved and so that we can all rejoice together. Please stand with me. As your word says, Lord, the entrance of your word brings light. So, Lord, we thank you for the scriptures of truth and the light that they bring to us, the instruction and the correction and the training. Father, thank you so much for condescending and loving unworthy, wicked and vile sinners, the both kinds, the kinds that are teachable and the kinds that aren't. Father, thank you for your amazing love. And Lord, I pray for us as Christians that you would renew our excitement, you would renew our vision. Lord, that we would rejoice to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we would be renewed in our passion to bring in those who don't know you and to tell them about you. And Lord, please save many people in this city. Please use our little congregation as a light, not only when we come together, but when we disperse as well and we take this light with us wherever we go. Please use us to spread this gospel. Please bring in many people. Help us to find those who are ready. And please, by your spirit, turn many hearts, Lord, to be ready to receive your truth. May you be glorified in our time, in our day, in our place. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.